1: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast.
3: Of course, Fernando Valley is our Bloomberg Intelligence uh, oil strategist here. Fernando, you are on Bloomberg Television, I want to say two days ago or so with me. We talked about Jeff Curry's big call about China reopening, kind of kickstarting this uh, super cycle in commodities. How long is that going to take?
4: it may take longer than expected for a couple of reasons. first, uh, the just the contagion that we've uh, seen and the rising cases that it's actually uh, limiting the the traffic. So if you look at the ridership, for example, in the Beijing subway, it's still about thirty percent of their usual levels uh, pre-lockdown. So we're still far away from. A, a real impact on, on demand, and then I think what you said about the that ceiling not to restart uh, something. No, please but, do tell me uh, I'm right. <laughs> something to, to that could break. It, it, it's China, it's Japan. Uh, those are all very severe risks in the short term that are headwinds for oil and oil consumption. Because, uh, as you said, Krity, there is a, an issue with how we fund our government, and not just in the U.S. but globally, and that. Uh, if we have a, an issue there and that leads to lower demand because we had to either uh, raise rates or, uh, or just find a way of containing investments that will ultimately impact uh, oil consumption at least in the short term.
3: Wait, so you're saying the debt ceiling has an impact on the oil market?
4: And vice versa. I think obviously energy has been a big contributor to inflation and global inflation and one of the reasons that they're looking to raise rates and then that impacts interest payments on the debt and, and so on and so forth. Smart man. Matt Levine calls the debt ceiling the dumbest thing in economics.
3: Why?
2: Well, because we do this to ourselves constantly, and it's no good for probably the interest payments that we need to make. But it's you'd hear probably some arguments from Republican congressmen, right? I mean, they love to use it as a tool.
3: True, and they have been for for years on years.
4: The concept of the ceiling itself is not Great, but the fact that we should limit our, our spending should be something that we adhere to, right? That
3: I mean, this is why you have like credit card limits, right? right. For the every everyday at the end consumer. of the
4: day, exactly. And I think the constant spending and the, the modern monetary theory uh, has just led us into this cycle of inflation that uh, and and and, and productive investments and. Uh, the very negative or low interest rates have shied away from creating asset heavy investments including in energy uh, that are necessary for as a building block to our economy i think ultimately i always think of it as uh, household economics uh, but in a nation scale and we're spending everything on the credit card and We haven't we haven't invested on anything that actually makes money. You know, the the trend for the past 10 years is let's buy companies that don't generate revenues at all and um, and shy away from the ones that are generating cash flow. And I think that has to revert at some kind.
2: That's like my household economics. (laughs) Try spending all your money on cars and motorcycles, (laughs) depreciating assets um, until the pandemic in terms of China. um, I I still can't get away from Curry's call. And I think it's uh, it's it makes a lot of sense. China is huge, and the reopening is going to drive economic growth at some point, okay? Subway ridership be damned. People are going to be driving their cars and filling them up. Um, Europe isn't nearly as bad as had been anticipated, so you could get actual growth there. I mean, Schultz told us they're not going to have a recession, and obviously he's going to say that, but it still is reassuring, and I guess the the final— um, point is that the Fed may be done raising rates. How much or how closely have you been watching the Fed as uh, an oil analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence?
4: Uh, Very closely. In fact, uh, last year in our our mid-year outlook, we said the Fed is the biggest risk uh, for oil prices. And and lo and behold, uh, it panned out. And and then we said China is the biggest risk. And um, but we think that, as you said, China, the reopening will have an impact. The question is, it doesn't solve the Chinese consumer. Right. It will improve the, their, the overall activity versus December, but it doesn't solve that they're massively levered and their real estate uh, bubble is still there. And it hasn't. it's been pricked, but it hasn't burst. Uh, I was just telling Eric, uh, if, you, if you think New York is expensive, the average wage to buy an apartment in Beijing is 47 years. Uh, 47 years of medium wage to buy an apartment in Beijing. Wow. So good luck affording that. and. Uh, ultimately, you know, in an autocratic government as China, all that debt reverts to the provinces and then ultimately to the central government. So,
2: Awesome. Fernando Valle, knocking it out of the park. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming into the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Fernando Valle, senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, talking to us about the oil markets, and they are interconnected to say the least.
0: This.
1: Yeah, housing starts a disappointment today. We have a
2: perfect guest to comment on that. Patrick Carroll just walked into the studio. He is the CEO and founder of Carroll, which is a a national leader in, um, what, multifamily uh, and residential properties? Yes, sir. Patrick, um, so what do you think about the the weak data? What do you think about the state of the industry right now from your uh,
5: important perspective? Yeah, so we focus on multifamily for rent. So, you know, rental... Properties tend to do well right now when um, when people can't really get mortgages. You know, mortgage rates uh, to buy single family homes have doubled, and so it's keeping a lot more people renting. Uh, that said, our costs are up. So you know, a lot of a lot of you know loans, a lot of people that have bought heavily you know, in our sector are on you know floating rate loans, and they're seeing you know their interest rates double as well. So it's it's a tricky time. Um, a lot of people are concerned about the Fed just because of the uncertainty. Nobody really knows which direction they're going in.
3: But what does that then mean for the divergences you're seeing in different parts of the country? I imagine Seattle's probably reacting differently than Miami.
5: Yes. So you know, for 20 years we focused on the Sun Belt, which are, you know, categorically business-friendly states. Uh, you know, lower cost of living, high quality of life. So you know, pre- you know, especially after COVID. A lot of people moved out of Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, and they moved south. You know, Florida's booming. I live in Miami. It's booming. Uh, Georgia, Texas, all these areas continue to really attract people. So the fundamentals are strong. It's just, you know, from a capital market standpoint, a lending standpoint, it's very, very difficult right now.
2: So, but we've been hearing from a lot of market participants, they don't believe the Fed is going to go much over 5 even though the Fed itself says, "Yeah, five, five and a quarter is where we're headed," um, what's your view? And I mean, floating rate debt seems like the perfect solution
5: at this point, right? Well, I mean, it's it's good when it was low. I mean, when the Treasury was in the yeah. one, one, the you love that zero interest rate policy, huh? Yeah, I mean, it it was a beautiful thing. Um, you know, what's happened is the Fed it's not really where it ends up. It's just the pace that they've moved rates. They've moved it so fast it's it's freaked people out. And you've seen valuations really get hit too. Uh, commercial real estate is directly tied to 10-year treasury. You know, the higher, the, if the 10-year goes to 5%, technically cap rates should be six and a half to seven. You know, six months ago, cap rates were 3%. So, I mean, that's a 50% decline in values potentially if rates continue to go like that. But if they stay,
2: I mean, I was thinking about this when we were talking with our mortgage-backed securities analyst Erica Edelberg yesterday, we saw mortgage rates at one point go well over 7%, mm-hmm. um, you know, the bank rate uh, uh, numbers, and now they've come down to basically six. If we hold here, is that okay? You, you're concerned about the pace of the move, not about the absolute level.
5: I think it's okay, but it just, you know, if, if you're borrowing at six in a year ago, you could borrow it, you know, in the threes, technically you can afford less, you know, 50% less house. So I've heard a stat somebody that qualified for a 300 I mean for a $700,000 lo- uh, loan a year ago cuz now can only afford a, a you know $350,000 loan. So I think it's going to it's going to hurt valuations, you know, if, in the housing market, in the single family housing market and in commercial real estate, you know, the higher rates are and if, even if they stay there, it, that's a, they've doubled. So valuations are going to have to All right.
2: So let me ask you this. I mean, you've done well uh, because of this conundrum that a lot of consumers find themselves in. Um, People can't buy a house, so they rent a property instead. You've been a beneficiary of that. What happens when or if the Fed actually pivots and starts to come down? um, Are you concerned that those
5: people are going to move out of your rental properties? Um, No. You know, look, when the economy does well and people are spending money and things like that and, buying homes or whatever, you know, we tend to do well, Um, you know, no business really thrives off a bad economy. So, you know, I would love to see, you know, interest rates come in and and things get back to, you know, closer to where they were. Um, That said, yes, right now. Yeah, but the problem
2: with that is they're only going to cut if the economy does poorly. Right? Yeah. So you're in a position where you probably don't want to see the Fed pivot because that means we're in a recession.
5: That's right. You know, and that's not good. You know, we're still dependent on our residents having jobs, being able to pay the rent. Um, so in one hand, it's great. You, know, you have record high occupancies, people are not able to move out, and you know, we've, we've maintained great occupancies. On the other hand, you know, I'm still concerned about the overall economy. There's a lot of you know, potential bad things that could happen, uh, and that just affects everyone.
3: You done? <laughs> Matt has all these questions. I want to ask about commercial real estate with REIT specifically because you were talking about how REITs... Oh, was I sidelining you? A yeah. little bit, man. I'm so sorry. Matt gets like so... Pumped. I just find
2: it fascinating. I, I just think it's such an interesting business because yep. this is the kind of thing that you know we talk all day about high finance, but at the mm-hmm. end of the day, this is really what matters to the people. So
3: yeah, no, Matt loves this stuff. He loves yep. housing. He loves building stuff. We just kind of let him roll with it when he it. when he I needs. Love fire
2: trucks and bulldozers. <laughs> yeah,
3: wrestling. You know, all that all the kind of like stuff. Guy's guy. <laughs> He's a guy's guy. Uh, but we got to talk about these commercial real estates because if you look at the REITs market specifically. Real estate actually, from a market perspective, underperformed last year. Which almost feels counterintuitive, given the inflation story that you're talking about. Can you make sense of that?
5: Yeah, I mean, the REITs are way ahead of, or from a valuation standpoint, have been way ahead of the private markets. So you know, they've baked in, you know, the you know raising their, the rising interest rates. So literally, their valuations are down thirty something percent. You know, that it, di- it ties directly to what I was saying about cap rates. So you know, the 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 stock market is pricing that in. If you saw Blackstone came out with their, you know private REIT and they have not marked down their book. In fact, they marked it up last year. Yeah. So there is a little bit of uh, confusion on who's right and who's wrong. And, you know, I think the public markets tend to get right before the private markets. And so, you know, but it's all tied to interest rates. Like the fundamentals in, in our sector and multifamily are still very, very strong. It's entirely tied to capital markets and, you know, no one knows how high interest rates are going.
2: All right, Pat, great having you in the studio. Thanks so much Sir. for coming in.
3: We've got a really cool uh, reporter in studio here. Shanali Bastic is here to talk to us about a little bit of everything, I think. We are, of course, going to hear from Brian Moynihan over in uh, Davos, Switzerland, in just a few minutes. But until then, talk to us a little bit about the narrative that we're hearing. I mean, you're obviously here in studio, but in Davos, which really seems to be uh, the Wall Street debt ceiling story. What do you think? Well,
6: you know, what's really really interesting about that, Critty, is, you know, there's a Wall Street debt story. We've been talking about the debt limit since last year, (laughs) honestly. We've been talking about it for a good eight to 12 months. There was a real concern that this would become an issue this year. So of course, if you're a banker, it's a problem (laughs) because you deal in treasuries. So that's kind of the simplest way to say the story. As far as Davos goes, I think Mary Erdos in her conversation with David Weston put it well he asked her if she was surprised by anything and she goes i'm surprised by the lack of conversation about covid i'm surprised by the lack of conversation about crypto and by the way you know i think for davos in particular that's where the frustration lies one year you go and there's a big hot topic and the next year you go and maybe there's no follow-up and so similarly climate and esg issues have taken a similar pivot where obviously the questions around investing in climate have gotten a lot more complicated for bank executives that are under fire of uh between every pension fund in america well
2: and to be honest it's probably the last thing they care about right now right i mean we have stories about every bank trying to control costs (laughs) goldman sachs was down seven percent the other day biggest drop in over a year for goldman sachs right now Bank America is talking about a hiring freeze. All of a sudden, it looks like these banks are coming under fire because they can't stop spending.
6: Listen, they're expected to spend, in aggregate, the big six banks, a record amount of money this year, and two-thirds of those costs are expected to come from personnel expenses. That's how much headcount has not only ballooned, but wages have also risen. Interestingly, at a place like Bank of America, remember, they have a lot of branches across the country. So does J.P. Morgan. One thing I know I'll be looking out for in the proxy season in a couple months here, which is where kind of the annual filings come out is a few things. One is CEO to worker pay. We talk about this every time. There are a lot of nuances. But listen, at the top end, you had bank CEOs also come off of record pay. You're starting to see a certain amount of firing. You are seeing some wage appreciation at some banks. Bank of America having not only risen their minimum wages, but risen them for a lot of their suppliers, requiring their suppliers to pay uh, their employees more as well. You didn't see that at J.P. Morgan. So they are handling the question of pay very, very differently. And remember, in Wall Street, like it or not, there's a bit of a pecking order here. And sometimes, very often, the investment bankers who are highly paid get paid more first, but they're also getting fired first too. Well, speaking of the
3: packing order, we are obviously just coming off of a run of bank earnings as well, and I think you said that Goldman sets the industry standard when it comes to uh, hiring and firing as well. Um, what did we learn this time around? Did Goldman set the standard, or was it more of a JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley story?
6: On, on pay and talent, they certainly set a standard here. You have to watch, remember, a lot of these firms are facing less attrition because people are, you know, just as banks are worried about recession, so are their employees. So they're less likely according to their CEOs, to move, which means the banks themselves are also hiring less. So you have to wonder, by mid-year, after bonus season, after the musical Chairs Act that happens on Wall Street, after everyone gets their bonuses and decides whether they like it or not. Or doesn't and
2: leaves to go to the bank across the street.
6: Exactly. This is the the part where we're watching where people choose to move with their feet. Do all those pandemic-era lovely ideas of work from home matter anymore, or does it come down to the bottom line for every individual employee? I think this is where the rubber really hits the road on how we determine trends. Which do you think it'll be? I think it's gonna come down to money, because guess what? Inflation's still running hot, people have bills to pay. So uh, I think it's a really tough calculus here to sit there and say, "Hey, uh, hey, hello, hello to my boss, and can I work from home today? when everyone else is coming in. Yeah. It's a it's a very uh, it's a pivotal moment for a lot of these workforce changes that we've seen start to kind of materialize. You had James Gorman just say today that he doesn't think people are going to come in 5 days a week. But you see a lot of people remember James Gorman Morgan Stanley is actually in purchase New York. So it's a little more they have a very suburban base. You see a lot of these companies building more <laughs> suburban bases to meet their employees where it's they are. So
2: nice in purchase. I think they're building a new pickleball facility there.
6: If I didn't love doing Is it with radio you and, and TV lately? so much, I'd move upstate with you, Matt. Yeah.
2: it's. I mean, well, I do a lot of radio and TV as well, but I managed to live up there. It's it's not really upstate, right? It's yeah. like 30 minutes north. That, no that traffic. That feels
6: pretty upstate to me. I live 15 minutes from Bloomberg's offices. So. I mean, the Upper East Side feels upstate <laughs> to me. But,
2: um, so, you know, I, I wonder... Um, It's really just the masters of the universe that matter, right, in terms of costs. It's not the tellers. You talk about Bank of America. They have branches all over the place. And I'm sure um, they're going to be demanding as much as they can to get a pay raise to match or beat inflation. Uh, It's unlikely that they're going to be able to do that, right?
6: What's interesting about it is that, think about it this way. How much do they actually want people to come into a branch and put in more deposits in the bank after bloating up their deposit base after so long? Um, I think something. in the mortgage businesses are also under pressure. Bank branches broadly across America, across a larger banking system, have declined. Real estate costs also tied to those branches are also high. So consolidation among bank branches are important to watch out for. There's a shift, a meaningful shift in the workforce where a lot of these banks are doubling down on their wealth businesses.
2: By the way, what did Morgan Stanley do right the other day? (laughs) You know, Because when Goldman was down 7%, they were up 7%. They both put out earnings in the same day.
6: I mean, it's a very simple thing. And it's funny. It's not a one-day trend. If you look, when David Solomon took over at Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs' market cap was more than $5 billion over Morgan Stanley's. Today, there's a more than $20 billion difference. I want to say $40 billion difference. I forget where we are. Volatile, but yeah. Morgan Stanley is way ahead, and that has uh, only increased over time. When I started the job, that was unheard of. Morgan Stanley was a little sister, but James Gorman's pivot to the wealth business is paying off, and it's also showing you that the margins in a tough environment are meeting that of an investment banking business, which typically had been, you know, prided on having higher margins because all you're really paying for is the banker.
3: Well, because of this trend, do you then see other banks following suit?
6: Yes, and you see it, At scale, Bank of America, of course, J.P. Morgan. Their biggest acquisitions have been in wealth management. Morgan Stanley has doubled down on wealth management. Uh, You know, uh, the changes at Credit Suisse will be interesting across the globe. Uh, UBS wants to hire more. Uh, The huge wealth manager, Citigroup, wants to pivot more to wealth. I name me a bank that doesn't want to double down on wealth. And you know what it is? It's as folks grow up as, as new people enter the workforce they want to catch them quickly they want you to save with them they want you to invest with them they want you to borrow with them and so net for Morgan Stanley they don't believe their net interest income has peaked because they think that their clients which tend to be wealthier clients will still be borrowing more in this environment
2: what do you want to hear most importantly from the CEOs at Davos
6: you know I think the talent story is hard not to pay attention to because it's what really people are paying attention to -to day-to-day. You know, I had talked to David Weston and Lisa Bromowitz before they talked to James Gorman. I'm glad they addressed this question of succession. I was just about to ask, yeah. there's kind of another hot potato in the room here. And, you know, somebody, Max Abelson, was like, let's make this the lead of your newsletter on Friday. Max
2: Abelson, the... Uh, Famous young Bloomberg reporter. (laughs) Uh,
6: Because we've covered this a lot together. It's not that very top rank of the bank at the CEO level. It's everybody under them. Because folks like James Gorman, Brian Moynihan, Jamie Dimon, they've been around for a while. So there's a lot of questions about how they manage the staff at the highest levels below them. And at Morgan Stanley, the three successors in place, the potential successors, out of all of them, none of them are women. And so you start to wonder about the DNI story. Jane Fraser is still the only woman leading a big six bank.
2: DNI is diversity and inclusion. Diversity
6: and inclusion. I mean, when I kind of go out there and talk to folks in the market, there's a concern that in a downtime, as usual, that um, will start to fade as a priority.
2: All right, Shanali Basik talking to us about what's going on in terms of uh, the banks. We've finished with the big six in terms of
0: earning, earnings, and.
3: Uh, Let's get to a story after the bell, or that's coming up after the bell, I should say Netflix reporting some of their earnings uh, as well. And who better to get a little bit of a preview and kind of a a really shifting story. Uh, Geetha Ranganathan, our U.S. media analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us. Geetha, thank you as always for taking the time. To me, something that is so striking when it comes to these Netflix earnings is that it started with a focus on subscriber count then went to a focus with how quickly and what quality are some of these streaming giants uh, kind of ushering out new content. Uh, Squid Games is the one that comes to mind. Horrible. Never saw it. On to the next. Thank, uh, th- thank goodness Emily for and you. I unfortunately my, watched my the vibe. whole
2: thing of Squid Games. Now, I think I'm scarred for life. Regar- it actually hurt
7: my psyche.
3: We're going to circle back to that. Regardless, Geetha, it feels like the focus is on ad spend now.
7: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right that the narrative has clearly shifted away from just this being in this land grab phase for subscribers. And we're kind of moving to more, uh, you know, revenue acceleration. And one of the catalysts for accelerating revenue growth is... Definitely the introduction of advertising on the platform. Uh, and it's telling because Reed Hastings just recently said, We should have done this sooner. We should have lost, you know, religion on advertising much sooner. Um, so I think this, this then kind of becomes such a key, um, you know, I think advertising just positions them so much as a good recession play, especially if macro conditions worsen because, you know, the ad tier becomes so attractive for, for value conscious customers.
2: So what's the future look like for Netflix? Are we going to start seeing um, ads pop up there? I guess you can choose uh, in which basket you want to fall, right? Ad lists or with ads. Um, Are they going to start capping costs? You know, Paul Sweeney, um, who covered media for years, always says the costs are the big problem.
7: Yeah, the costs are the big problem. They were a huge problem for Netflix, but not anymore uh, because uh, they are tightening their belts. uh, So they have uh, kind of capped content costs now at about $17 billion. Uh, That's how much they're going to spend on an annual basis. Um, And this is when other you know, rivals like Disney and, and Warner Brothers and, and Paramount and Peacock are all still spending. They're all still in a very, very heavy spending phase, and they're all still seeing huge losses. Uh, meanwhile, you have Netflix that that is uh, turning around a profit and that is looking to actually expand uh, its margins and drive free cash flows.
3: Well, Geetha, how much of the story, though, is turning into a U.S. versus international story for Netflix?
7: So on the subscriber front, I mean, if there has to be growth, it does have to come from international markets. It does have to come from emerging markets, whether it's Latin America, whether it's the Eastern European markets, whether it's India, uh, other regions of the Asia-Pacific. So a lot of, you know, the subscriber growth is still going to come there. It's going to come from there. But when you look at, you know, the revenue growth and an acceleration in the ARPU metric, that is going to come from uh, a lot of the developed markets, whether it's the U.S., uh, uh, you know, the U.K., so many of the other European markets, that is where you see Netflix really having a lot more kind of pricing power and a lot more flexibility to to raise prices, as well as, you know, with their new initiatives, whether it's advertising or a password crackdown. Again, they get to really kind of tweak that metric, especially in the developed economies.
1: Well,
3: Geetha, focus in on a little bit about the India piece of it. And, of course, I am Indian, so I'm very biased about this, as are you. Um, But I was on Netflix the other day. American Indian. American. Well, both. I was born Indian American. Indian American. Fair. Um, Geetha, uh, I was on Netflix the other day, and I saw Ranbir Kapoor and Alia Butt movies, which are, by the way, for international audience, Bollywood, like, mega stars. And to see that... Are they awesome? They're amazing. And they're uh, married and just had a child. Irrelevant. But, like... (laughs) Cute and adorable, and I follow it very closely. Anyways, um, Gita, to see them on the main page of Netflix as a viewing option from an international perspective, and then you go to a company like Disney, for example, which is partnering with Hotstar, which once again is showing the same offerings, how does Netflix compete in an environment like that in India? So it is, it
7: is definitely going to be a, a tough road for them to kind of up their subscriber games. But they are trying. Uh, and, they, uh, you know, you bring up a really, really good point with Disney, because I think the competition there has been absolutely fierce. In many ways, you can say that Disney has got many, many leg, legs up in, in that race, uh, especially in India, just because they, have, they just inherited such a great asset uh, in Hotstar when they, when they did that Fox acquisition. And one of the key things with Hotstar was, of course, IPL cricket and so many of the other games that indians absolutely love um so you know they already have a a, a huge user base there they'll probably get to about 60 to 70 million subscribers in india alone uh, in the next two to three years so that is absolutely a critical piece of the pie for for disney
2: sorry how many Uh, subscribers in india
7: about 60 to 70 million they currently have about 40 45 million so uh, it, it is a huge piece of of the disney plus subscriber count not necessarily contributing to them from a you know, revenue or profit perspective, but definitely helps them kind of juice up those subscriber numbers. For Netflix, it's been a little bit of a, of a you know, slow build, I would say. Uh, but again, with this ad tier, I think it could be a game changer. So it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of evolves in a lot of these developing countries, especially India, just kind of given the massive potential of that market.
2: Just got 30 seconds here. But who is the leader in China? Because I know India is surpassing China in terms of population growth, and they're growing rapidly economically, but China is still the second biggest economy in the world and probably will be the first biggest very soon.
7: So China is actually closed to a lot of these U.S.-based players. So Disney, uh, Netflix, none of them really operate in China right now. So it's a lot of the local players, uh, you know, it's it's, it's you know, um, all, all the, the Baidu, the Alibaba. They control all the video streaming services uh, in, that, uh, in that country. Uh, it's still pretty much closed to, uh, you know, um, U.S.-based services.
2: All right, Geetha, thanks very much. Geetha Ramanath on there talking to us about Netflix. Um, everyone looking forward to see uh, what this company does, and the streaming wars are such an important, uh, I guess, issue for the markets. Um, it's big money, folks. It's uh, Netflix is a $143 billion company still, even after the huge drop post-pandemic. So we will watch um, to see what happens with Netflix earnings when they come out after the bell today. We were just talking, uh, Kriti Gupta, about the Indian economy. I said it's the fastest growing economy in the world. Yeah. I'm not sure. It might be the fastest growing economy in the world this year. And I got that... Uh, Little tidbit from a piece I read this morning, India's surging population is economic virtue, written by Matthew Winkler. He is the editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News, and he joins us right now via Zoom. Matt, thanks so much for your time. Um, great piece on India. It's something that a lot of our uh, the investors that uh, Paul and I talk to on a regular basis talk to us about. The, the growth is phenomenal, I mean, solely down to the fact that they have 1.4 billion people. They may... Um, be larger than China soon. Um, And Kriti has said that she absolutely loves the movie uh, industry as well. Bollywood um, films are huge and they're seeping into the U.S. What do you think India's done right that others have gotten wrong?
8: Well, first of all, it's great to be with you and Kriti. And uh, what they've gotten right is, uh, first of all, they do have the demography, uh, you know, in their favor, as you mentioned. Uh, They will overtake China as the most populous uh, country in the world, and uh, there really is no shortage of superlatives when you think about India. It's the largest democracy, um, for one thing, and you mentioned the film industry, but really the most important is that um, it has uh, a relatively young uh, labor market, and um, that is really the elixir, if you like uh for growth and that's why as you mentioned over the last decade india's managed to surpass canada brazil italy russia france and the uk rising from number 11 uh, in gdp in the world to number five and it isn't it isn't stopping there it's going to have the fastest growing economy this year um you know and that's at a time when much of the world is teetering on the edge of a recession. Uh, but India is, according to 46 economists who contribute their forecast to Bloomberg, is going to expand 6.9% um, this year, and uh, that's really part of what is the beginning of another decade-long yeah. trajectory higher. I mean, one thing that you you really do need uh, to pay attention to is that um, exports are at a record. Uh, India is. Uh, you know, making a lot of stuff and sending it to the rest of the world at a rate that it hasn't in the past. And uh, that unprecedented growth really is, um, I think, a key variable. Uh, yeah. Total exports were something like 960 billion um, in 2021, for the, example. The
3: speed of this is is really exciting. And anecdotally, I can say a lot of this comes down to the leadership uh, from, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, before I, I ask my next question, I wanted to share with the audience that anecdotally, that years ago, um, you know, my family and I would go to to Delhi every every summer, and the expressway between the airport to the outside of New Delhi, to the suburbs, essentially, used to take three, four hours to, to get there. There is now an expressway that takes you 30 minutes max from, from the heart of, of New Delhi wow. to Uh, the outside or or Ghaziabad, which is where where I was born. But essentially, it has completely changed the dynamic. And a lot of that comes from infrastructure spending uh, at the helm of Narendra Modi's uh, budget. But Matt, I want to ask you how much of this acceleration is really coming down to being able to mobilize this population growth as we've seen happen in in China as well?
8: Well, as you just said, uh, infrastructure really is uh, a key element in all this. And as you also said, uh, it's something. It's spending that's been encouraged by uh, Modi. Um, all it's not just roads; it's rail networks, it's ports. Um, you know, India is the number two consumer of steel after China, for example. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, electricity demand is you know largely driven by economic activities such as manufacturing and uh, the industrial sectors. And that's why last year uh, or really over the past three years, you know, the power industry has, has led the market. But because of all that, going forward, what uh, we're seeing, at least as forecast, is that consumers discretionary uh, companies are going to outperform the rest of the market. And that that is a real, if you like, leading indicator. That demand in Italy is going up, and it's going up because, as Critti says, I mean, you can get from here to there a lot easier. When we started Bloomberg News, by the way, uh, in 1990, in the early 90s, um, nobody wanted to, you know, get to the Mumbai airport. I mean, it was was third world, but it's now first world, uh, as an example. And so uh, there's really not anything that's in the way of India, because here's another thing. If you think about India, it's got a middle class uh, that is the size of the entire US population. So just think about it that way. Uh, If you have more than 300 million people, all of whom are middle class, all of whom are educated, uh, you're going to see the kind of growth that we're seeing right now.
2: By the way, how much of this growth is coming at the expense of the climate or at the expense of uh, the democratic global order because india has not condemned vladimir putin they continue to buy russian oil and i'm assuming that they're still one of the biggest polluters on the face of the earth not putting a value judgment on it i'm just asking you know h- how yeah, much of I, a benefit do they have in that case yeah i
8: think you've got that right i think that that is a criticism but why should india be penalized for all of the uh, if you like transgressions that uh, colonial and post-colonial um, countries alike uh, have um, enjoyed up to this point. And as to your your point about um, Ukraine, for example, where India is in fact on the fence and it has uh, a longstanding relationship with Russia that goes beyond the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But there, or Modi and his government, are pursuing this ultra-realist foreign policy that obviously deprioritizes uh, legal and moral aspects of international affairs, including climate change, and especially including uh, Ukraine. And it's all about India's national interests. And so they're doing what (laughs) a lot of uh, their oppressors historically have done for centuries, dare I say. And so I'm not sure it's fair to criticize India at this point for catching up to the rest of the world.
3: You know, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned that one of the uh, the statistics from I want to say the last couple of months was when India uh, crossed the UK in terms of GDP. It's like the fifth largest economy uh, right. now, which last you mentioned. Year. Right. And it was, I think, like weeks after Rishi Sunak was elected or something. Uh, the right. Indian community had a good three weeks in, in, in that little span. Uh, but Matt, in the last about minute that we have, talk to us a little bit about uh, the leadership here, Narendra Modi specifically, who. By the way, from an internal domestic point of view, is still quite a polarizing figure.
8: Yeah, there's no there's no doubt about it. Uh, look, uh, our friends in our profession of journalism are particularly um, and understandably um, concerned. Uh, yeah, well, very concerned because uh, there is uh, uh, a tendency to oppress and suppress. Um, Not unlike, by the way, other um, rulers who have become autocrats in formerly democratic places like Hungary, for example. So that is very much there. And then there's the other part, which is uh, Modi has really catered, pandered to uh, the, uh, the Hindi population and uh, at the expense of the muslim population and there's no question that that is also a great concern because that really goes against the inception of india it was meant to be a very open secular uh internationally minded if you like uh society coming out of uh, the british empire uh with independence and what modi is doing is 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 clearly some kind of repudiation if you like of what uh gandhi Mahatma Gandhi, um, you know, started. So uh, it is cause for concern. There's no question about it.
3: Well, certainly something we're going to keep an eye on, folks. You can check out this column uh, from Matt Winkler, Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief Emeritus on the Bloomberg Terminal, OPI and Go, and, and of course, Bloomberg.com as well. Uh, Matt, thank you as always for joining us.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us
1: worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
7: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?